All right, welcome everyone to the latest session of four randos, maybe it's three, three randos read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, today we're on chapter six, the uh, non-commercial of part one, part one, chapter six, non-commercial. And in this one, uh, Hank Reardon attends his anniversary party uh, to which Lillian Reardon has invited mostly her friends. Guests discuss the pending equalization of opportunity bill. Hank speaks with an uh, unexpected guest, Francisco Danconia, and Dagny Tagner trades. Dagny Taggart trades her diamond bracelet for Lillian's bracelet of rude metal, which to me was one of the high points of the book because that's just a, a badass move. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, this is the chapter where this happens. <laughs> uh, okay, so we could start with maybe this other. Oh, sorry, you, you had uh, some opening thoughts? Well, I don't know. Just this one was really hard to read. Yes. Um, very sad. I, I even had a... You mean because it's too, uh, too apropos to the current situation? Well, just... Not even oh, not even that, I think. It's just... <sighs> Reardon's in so much pain. And he's so intellectually and morally disarmed in the face of so much concentrated evil. It's just painful to watch. It is. Hell, just just the stuff between, yeah. mostly, uh, the, the, there's a profound disconnect in values with uh, the prevailing culture, there's that, and then between him and his wife, and they're just shoving in your face constantly. And um, it's like, look at... Big mystery going into this, like how the hell can he get into this circumstance where neither of these guys care about the other's life or interests? Um, they're still there. Uh, she's being unbelievably nasty to him, and he's for some reason not disengaging the abuse. It, it's just horrible. At least that's the, the first part. And then it gets even more interesting. So yeah, it's super sad, and it's like, oh wow, you have this very heroic guy who's torturing, <clears throat> torturing himself, and uh, it seems like Rand is uh, going to great pains to, to paint the picture of him being tortured. Uh, a, a guy who faces every problem at work, uh, relentlessly, isn't stopped, works his way through everything, loves it. Here he is. Um, finding it difficult to even get moving, much less solve the problem, like he solves all of his problems. Mm. So Which what the I guess hell's going like, on here? Yeah, psychologically, I guess that tells us at some level he doesn't think it's a problem. Uh, yeah. And later, uh, he they have him, his internal voice actually articulating some of this. I had to highlight those uh, horrible spots. Um, all right, so let's see. We got the anniversary party, the trade. Okay, so um, hey, <laughs> uh, from the uh, the teaching guide, they they have the, the short list of questions. The the John Galt legend that was told. Yes. 
Francisco was like, yeah, yeah, totally believe it. But it, of course, it, it is just a mythical thing. Why, uh, why would it even be floating around? No pun intended. Ugh. <laughs> Good God. Don't you mean thinking around? Yeah, something like that. If <laughs> <laughs> uh, I recall, um, oh, I don't want to spoil things too much, but there there seems to be no relation to the. Uh, um, this is more of a, it, it well, does, we, it's a mythical it does, telling. We don't know that well, yet. Though. It does not appear to be literally true. No. <laughs> Um, and and it's it's I, like I guess Rand is I, having fun laying di, a legend di, down. Uh, di, diegetically true, I guess I should say. Diegetically. Well, I mean, it's obviously not literally true because they're you know. Oh well, yeah. None, none of those events <laughs> are. Written. Yeah, are real. It's a what? What did Chris call yeah. it? A paracosm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a. It is true to the to the story. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So it's not. A, um, in, in the world of this story, of Rand's story, it is not true in that world. Mm -hmm. Factual. It's not factual in that world. Yeah. Like, like I said, it's not diegetically true. Um, hey, Siri, define diegetically. <laughs> oh, what? no. Shush. She was listening to... Uh, Uh, existing or occurring or occurring within the world of a narrative rather than as something external to that world. Well, that's precisely what you've been describing, Kyle. Today I learned a new word. Although generally, um, as I understand it, applied to sound, I guess, in you know, movies, television programs, etc. Um, so I may be broadening mm -hmm. it out a little. Uh, let's see. No, no, because uh, from what they're what what they're expanding here, and it's basically it's the worldview of the fiction work itself. It doesn't specify that it has to be a particular mode within that oh worldview. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying uh, here in this in in um, wiki wiki chenary, uh the first meaning was uh, in a diegetic way or manner. Uh, the music in the documentary is only used diegetically. There is no soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, I always remember. Um, so it's real. It a, uh, I think it was a family guy joke in which uh, some of the characters are trying to sneak up on someone and the soundtrack is playing, you know, sneaky music <laughs> as, as they are attempting to sneak up. And, you know, the two characters pause and one of them says, you know, is, isn't this music going to give us away, you know, that, that there's, you know, somebody sneaking around and the other character says, oh, don't worry about it. It's non-diegetic. Okay, that is awesome. <laughs> so, so another, another version of that is uh, where it's subverted in high anxiety with the, the Mel Brooks uh, take on, uh, on Hitchcock where you hear this swelling polka music in the background and they're looking around for where it's coming from. And then there's this bus with a polka yeah. band mm -hmm. on it. 
that drives yeah. by. I think there was a joke like that in Blazing Saddles as well. And it's like, where's the music coming from? Is it the band over there? You know? <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. So um, why is she? Okay. So um, I think it's very useful to the story at this point for her to be tossing it out as a, as a, as a legend. Uh, are there? Well, I mean, you think about it, it's, that... you know, you've got this catchphrase that's floating around and nobody, you know, seems to be able to clearly define what it means, but they all kind of sense when it's appropriate to use. And one of the things you would kind of expect inside of the fictional world is some people are going to have explanations for this. Um, you know, yeah, that does make sense. In in exactly the same sort of way that I think you can probably pick any idiomatic phrase uh, in English. And, you know, there's probably a dozen different folk explanations of where it came from and you know, what, what it means, you know, why, why it is the way that it is. Um, and most of those folk explanations will be wrong. And don't we get more instances of myth um, being spun out as we go? I, yes. Big, there, big memory. There, yeah. There, there are several. Three. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the interesting things to, to look at, and I think one of the reasons why Rand provides so many different in-world explanations of, you know, who John Galt is, um, you know, from various sources is, you know, the people who provide them generally don't have access to any actual fact. They're going off of that sense of what the phrase captures and means, and they're spinning stories about what they, you know, to explain what they understand it to mean. And so you look at the different legends that are presented and each one provides you with a line on you know who john galt really is yeah yeah and edward is in it has edward has entered the chat one second oh boy <clears throat> you know so i guess it's like in in this case you know john galt is someone who found something incredibly precious and valuable that he was not willing to live without, but could not bring back to the world. Mm -hmm. Which, okay. Yeah. Not too spoily version. Yeah, that, that's usable. Or something, something you could hang your hat on. I, um, was there an active, um, were there people maybe planting some of these just for fun? Well, I think, um, I think you might expect that Francisco's version of it was a plant of that nature. But, you know, where, we, where he likens him to Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But I think I think the rest of this is entirely spontaneous. That there's nobody going around planting uh, rumors or folk etymologies or anything of that nature. It's just uh, people trying to come up with an explanation for something that seems to be inexplicable. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, who is John Galton in the first place? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there is a discussion much later in the novel, at least speculating about how the phrase sort of came to spread through pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we're a long way away from that. Yeah. So backing up a little here, uh, I'm going to go for some of Diana's questions. Um, beep, beep, beep. Beep what? You're backing up. Oh. Um, yeah. That, that was, was the like, beeping I'm sorry, part. I was busy struggling. I was like, okay, how does this connect to Diana? <laughs> yeah. A little slow. It's been a week. Okay. Um, do and it's we, just getting uh, started. Do we have an uh, an analog in our laws to the equalization of opportunity bill? Well, probably antitrust to a certain I, maybe extent. maybe the tying and bundling of antitrust, the vertical yeah. integrations that they don't like. Mm-hmm. That was or horizontal. Is it vertical or horizontal integration? Uh, vertical. If you go from all vertical products, integration all the way up is the product. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and the th- certainly the the notion that a a particular you know the the scope of a business concern is subject to legal constraint and you know restriction you know you're not allowed to you know own a um you know a movie studio and a movie theater mm-hmm. um you know, so it may not be, you know, fully general in the sense of, you know, one, you know, and you're also not allowed to, you know, own a holding company that owns, you know, a movie studio and a movie theater. You know, they, they have to be yeah. managerially independent, mm-hmm. you know, from one another. Um, so I think the general principle is established. It may not be applied in the real world as clearly and consistently as something like the equalization of opportunity bill is proposing. Fair enough. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, obviously we don't get a detailed enough explanation of the legislation, you know, in the book, you know, as written, you know, something that, you know, prohibits a person from owning more than one business concern is obviously pretty vague. Yeah. You know, it, which it, isn't all that different from what we see in, in our own uh, legislation process. They yeah. like things to be vague. Yeah. Well, and it, it gets, I mean, there, there's obviously got to be a lot more stuff, you know, written into the law in the book, you know, to try to patch various obvious loopholes like the, you know, I only own the holding company, the holding company owns, you know, everything else or, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting into, you know, interlocking, um, uh, you know, chains of ownership where, you know, I own, you know, 51% of, you know, this company and, you know, my friend Bob owns the other 49% and I own 49% of his company and he owns 51% and, you know, I scratch his back and, you know, he scratches mine, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of making business decisions, you know, there, there are ways you could do stuff like that. Um, you know, which were tried in, you know, American history in response to the antitrust laws and were eventually patched out. 
or <clears throat> struck down by courts. Yeah. Uh, what does Hank think of this and the chance of being passed? Well, you know, the thing that struck me there is he's like Dan Conway. Uh, doesn't think it's that real. Well, he, he was assured by his Washington guy that it wouldn't pass. Oh, yeah. And Dan's idea was like, yeah, this is too insane. It just can't happen. It can't. Yeah. Um, you know, he did not. Yeah. I think the lines I was looking at is, you know, Reardon did not believe that the bill would pass. He was incapable of believing it. Yeah. And to me, that sounds an awful lot like Dan Conway's attitude towards. Um, no, I think you're right. Yeah. You know, what was going on there is just, you know, I'm, you know, you know, Conway was a businessman. He believed that if he ran a good railroad, that, you know, ultimately he would succeed and just could not believe that he would be, you know, deliberately kneecapped, you know, in, um, you know, by something like the, uh, I forget what the name of the rule was, the dog-eat-dog dog rule. Anti-dog-eat-dog anti rule. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and Reardon similarly here, you know, he's he's a consummate, um you know, producer, you know, metallurgist, you know, steel man, and, you know, believes that, you know, he focuses on that, you know, that's what he does, and that he just can't believe that something that wrong and, and irrational and senseless, you know, you know, could happen. Um, sort of, uh, projecting his own virtues onto them because in his world, it wouldn't uh, with the stuff he focuses on. Absolutely. Couldn't. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, more at the party, how does Hank respond to Dagny uh, and why is she disappointed? And what exactly is going on with his, uh, his reception of her? I think it's it's kind of like uh, George in uh, Seinfeld. He's uh, he's experiencing he's an ex he's experiencing a conflict between personal George and business George. <laughs> that's oh, that's great. Yeah, um, he's in this repressed. Um, I think he's evading uh, everything going on in himself yeah. during this. It's like he in in order to sort of survive in Lillian's world. He basically has to completely suppress himself. And which that would means, lead to her disappointment. She only went yeah, there to which, meet which him. Which means that, you know, he he's you know, he's he's basically completely shut off his own personal values. He's completely cut away, cut off from them in this context. And Dagny's used to dealing with him, you know, in the business world where he is expressing his authentic personal values instead of completely suppressing them. And this does explain all of the behavior, chilly reception, not wanting to engage. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. he knows that in order to engage with, with her, he has to let out the part of him that if he lets it out in this environment would lead him to do something that he considers evil and unjustified, namely basically losing his shit on Lillian and her friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he, he still came really close a couple of times because uh, she's really pushing her luck 
Although maybe this is a like the uh, the owner of uh, of an elephant uh, beating the snot out of them when they're little and reminding them as they grow. It's like, oh no, I've got this stick. You really don't want to mess with me. So maybe she's just constantly conditioning him. And for some reason, that that whole scene reminded me of a, a brief little gag in an old episode of The Simpsons where Bart is working in a burlesque house at the front desk. And, uh, <laughs> and, and his, and his grandfather in. walks in the door and, you know, Bart greets him and he just, you know, his grandfather walks in the door, puts his hat on the hat rack. Bart greets him. His granddad just turns around, takes the hat off the uh, hat rack and walks back. Out the door <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> okay. Uh. It's, it's a great piece of physical comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he sticks his head back in and and asks about the address if i remember correctly. something there was some kind of follow-on gag <laughs> oh man all right so uh yeah, yeah. speaking of pushing the line uh, she brought scudder there bertram uh, scudder the guy who did the hit piece uh mm -hmm. and what was uh what'd she call him was she how did she react to his reaction? Don't be such a fuddy-duddy. Something like that. Puritan. Don't be a such Puritan. a Puritan. Yeah. Um, so why do you... Okay, a uh, guy with the psychologist training. Uh, why Why was he in, invited? Is it just to condition Hank? Yes. Or, or more nihilistic, just to spit in his eye? I, I, mean, I, think, it's, I think it's more nihilistic. I mean, uh, later I'm um, writing down, it's like, this guy is pure nihilism. What the hell? Well, well I mean, no, who, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is, is if, we don't know this yet. I mean, who at this party, but, you know, on the looter side is not, you know, pure nihilism? Yeah, there are some I that mean, are more every, explicit. <laughs> like, yeah, so, some, in some cases it's clearer than others, but all of these people are on, you yeah. know, fundamentally destructive premises. Yeah. Okay, fair. Um, so, sorry, we we won't know it until until the third section. But all along, this has been about conditioning Hank from the perspective of a horsewoman, James. Hmm. Hmm. You don't recall that quote. No. So basically, Jim Taggart wants to know why she wants to break Hank. And she says, from the perspective of a horsewoman, James, uh -huh. you don't want to have a mount that is too strong for you to ride. Yeah, but I don't, I don't actually believe that. You don't think she, you think she's being a uh, dishonest narrator here um, or there? I... Or is she manipulating think, James? Well, I Both. think Lillian might, you know, try to believe that about her own motivations. Um, but I think, you know, in actuality, you know, she's, you know, one of the most evil characters in the novel. You know, she is a, you know, a looter and a nihilist of the spirit. And she knows that Reardon is a great man, and she wants to destroy him for that. She's not trying to tame him. 
She wants him dead. That is, that is what it feels like. She's yeah. really trying to destroy him, to break yeah. him. She, she wants him to suffer and she wants him to die. But I think she can't ever admit that to herself without, um, you know, breaking her own psychology in, you know, without going into detailed spoilers in a way that would resemble the ultimate fate of James Taggart. Well, it, it would it would break her too. She's utterly dependent on him. But yeah, I I do not believe, although th this probably goes beyond the scope of, of this particular chapter, but as, as the book goes yeah. on, um, my sense is that, you know, the idea of, you know, saying that she wants to tame Reardon you, would essentially be she wants a reliable meal ticket. So you know, she wants him toned which is, down, which, obedient. Which would be which would be a form of uh, second-handed value pursuit, right? You know, somebody who, um, you know, takes the view that, you know, for, for some reason I've managed to get my cause into this, you know, source of great wealth and I want to make sure it doesn't get away from me. Hmm. But I think that gives Lillian more credit than she deserves for, you know, basically being a pursuer of values, even in a mistaken sense. Interesting point. So uh, basically it's a case of evasion on her part. She's giving herself a more acceptable uh, motive mm -hmm. because and, and she can't even face her own nihilistic impulse. Like an, yes. like an addict who, who won't well, actually come to grips with basically a death wish. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is, this comes back around to, um, you know, Rand's more abstract philosophical psychological point that human beings have a fundamental sort of spiritual need for self-esteem, you know, to believe that they are, you know, in some sense, worthy and capable of living. And if a person is not, in fact, worthy and capable of living, they will delude themselves into believing that they are. They will find some grounds for concluding that, you know, they're not a bad person, that the bad stuff is not really their fault. Yeah. Bad guys never think they're bad guys. <laughs> yeah, ever. And... Unless they're Ellsworth Tui. <laughs> and Rand her. And Rand herself acknowledged, I think, in her journals that Tui is unrealistic precisely for that reason, that Tui is just a little bit too self-aware of what he's doing than is actually psychologically possible. Yeah. I, all, people like Samanau who study these guys, they, they never say, oh, yeah, they, they think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the villain today. It's like, no, they, they always have some rational rationalization yeah i mean, I, i've noted before you know like in Samanow's work i mean you literally get you know serial killers who say things like well you know sure i you know murder you know babies and uh, and eat them but i don't have sex with the corpse first i'm not a monster <laughs> not a monster you know <laughs> sure yeah <sighs> sure it's like you you draw that line wherever you have to to get up in the morning i guess um <laughs> that's like well it's crazy that that actually came out of somebody's face hole yeah i mean i won't claim that that's an exact quote but um uh, close enough but i mean you you saw rationalizations and justifications that were in that you know that were that degree of absurd yeah 
Yeah. Or, you know, uh, a, a lot of criminals will, you know, basically convince themselves that they're good because they still, you know, they treat their mom right. Yeah. I'm, well, yeah, they, they're, so, they're, quick, they're quick. ruthless killers, but they're, you know, they, 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 they fund schools too, you know. Or, but but they, yeah. they believe that they treat their mom right, although if, often if you dig into how they actually treat their mom, they don't actually treat mom that well either. Yeah, it probably uh, depends on what you mean by right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, quick question, not to make an ad Hitlerum argument, but you think, for instance, uh, Stalin with his deliberate purges and his uh, you know, target target numbers that he gave out to the NKVD. You think? Do you think he was? Because it seems pretty obvious that he was doing it because he liked it. Yeah, but he probably also told I himself mean, this, the story of like I'm fixing the the motherland or whatever. Well, I, I don't know from from, from what, and, and I'm not an expert on this guy, obviously. But so, for instance. You, if you were condemned to death by the NKVD, you were given the opportunity to write to Comrade Joe, you know, Comrade Stalin, and, and appeal for uh, clemency. Well, <laughs> Stalin used to read these, or have them read to him while he was eating because he thought they were funnier than hell. I mean, Pretty fucked up. That doesn't strike me as being well, evasive. Oh, no. This is somebody that's fully embraced their evil. Well, he's fully embraced the pleasure that he takes in, you know, sort of exercising that kind of arbitrary power over the lives of others. That's not the same thing. And so, uh, like the person who's like, well, sure, I kill the babies and uh, rape their corses, cor corpses, but blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's I like, mean, yeah, I do those evil things, but I'm not an evil guy because, see, so well, he's doing these or, evil things. He probably has some rationalization in his head. Well, or I it's mean, necessary. From, from a self-esteem or pseudo self-esteem perspective, you know, Stalin is doing this and it gives him the experience of being powerful. He's in charge. He's the dispenser of life and death oh, yeah, over all of these other people, right? You know, that's a foundation of his sense of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I'd say when, you know, when he's doing that, you know, he is, he's absolutely, I mean, he's reveling in it because it makes him feel, you know, powerful in charge, you know, that, that reality, you know, bends to his will yeah huh. so you you think that it's actually impossible for a person to embrace evil at that level i think and survive psychologically um, i think rand's argument is that if a person genuinely comes to believe that they are incapable of and not worthy of existing that they will stop existing pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with that. It's like, if they really accept that, if they really yeah. think that, but why, you know, why would but, they continue existing? Yeah. But Stalin didn't believe that. Um, 
you know, deep down, I mean, I think he probably was unworthy of continuing to exist. Hitler was unworthy of continuing to exist. But, you know, both men had rationalizations and reasons for, you know, ignoring or evading that fact, things that they would point to in their own minds to say, no, I am powerful, I am capable, I am, you know, I am righteous. Mm -hmm. So you think then that C.F. Lewis is right when he claims that there's a universal morality that even those who contravene it have to pay it? homage to um i'm not sure i'd put it in quite those terms i would say that there are certain fundamental facts about you know there are certain fundamental psychological facts about human consciousness that must be respected in order for it to be able to serve its function of guiding action in with the goal of sustaining one's own existence. And those requirements are facts. They're not chosen. And, you know, if those requirements are not met, certain consequences follow in exactly the same way that if you don't eat food, you will starve to death. And yet we have a... Uh... But that, that's not exactly, you know, a moral argument. I mean, you, you can see that pretty clearly on the physical level that it's just, no, you know, that it's not like there is a universal morality that requires that I eat food. You know, that's just a biological fact. Yeah. It only becomes moral, you know, in the context of saying, yeah, and I choose to remain in existence. And at that point, you know, having made that choice, you are then in a moral universe where you could actually say, well, now... You know, if you say, I choose to remain in existence and you refuse to eat, you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah. So there are fundamental facts you need to attend to if you want to stay in existence. So in that sense, yeah, there's, there, um, I guess you would say um, those fundamental facts are facts for uh, all of us. They're, uh, yeah. They, they are universal in that sense. Well, uh, yeah, they're universal, but I guess what, I, what I'm looking at is I'm having a little trouble formulating this, but there's there's a certain parasitical function going on here in that these people aren't actually doing what is required to stay in existence under their own power. They're more or less stealing it from somebody else. Yes, that's, you know, observably true. And whether it's, you know, questions of material goods versus some <clears throat> psychological payoff that, that keeps them functional. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I've, I've always had difficulty, particularly with, with Lewis's attempt there to claim a universal morality. Um, 
partly because his argument is based in Christianity and altruism. And his, his argument was that you could no more have an anti-morality than you could biologically argue that poison is just as uh, filling mm. as like, real food. It's like he's he's hit upon uh, something that is fundamentally true, but he's uh, trying to grapple with it yeah. through the lens well, of Christianity, and that uh, he, he has yeah. the wrong. Principle. I mean, this is. I mean, this is about um, the nature of evil. Um, you know, we're spinning off a bit from the novel here, but I don't know if you guys ever listened to Greg Salmieri's lecture on the nature of evil. No. Um, but it's, so. uh, yeah, it's, um, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. Uh, it was one hmm. of the, uh, one of the Ocon things. Um, it's very interesting um, because he talks about sort of the, the weird sort of alien feeling that you get looking at an evil person where it's like they're engaged in what looks like a process of, goal-directed action like they're pursuing something that is like a value but at the same time it's obviously not like a value because mm -hmm. it's evil you know yeah. and you look at it and you say it, it's self-destructive you know how are you why are you doing this it makes no sense um and so you know this this you get this weird reaction it, 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 it's kind of uncanny valley creepy of you know, it's like this person is You're doing acting, value pursuit, but that's not a value. Like the meth yeah, they're, they're acting for like, Yeah, they're they're acting like a human being, but they're also not acting like a human being at the same time. Because they're doing something that looks like value pursuit, but isn't. But it also yeah. still sort of is. <laughs> they're they're um, pursuing it. Like you know, it's a value, it's like, but it's not a value. It's an anti-value. Right. Hmm. You know, it's like you you look at you know a serial killer like Ted Bundy. You know, it's like his action is obviously in some sense goal-directed, right? I mean, he stakes hmm. out women. He's got a particular type that he looks for. He lays plans for you know how he's going to kidnap them, and you know, doing all of this mental activity to get it doing done. all this mental activity. I mean that. It, it's like it seems like he's thinking he's identifying facts he's setting goals he's pursuing them and at the same time it's just wrong <laughs> it is it uncanny valley <laughs> um, it is you know it's, and, it's like a spiritual uncanny valley yeah and and so what's going on here and um one of the things i remember from greg's lecture that i thought was very interesting um as a, a sort of analogy is you know Think about biology. Um, you know the way terrestrial, you know, animal biology works. Um, you know, we have cells. They're capable of division and reproduction as part of the process of maintaining, uh, you know, our life biologically. Right. This is how we grow. It's how we heal. Um, and so on. And so that capacity for cells to divide and, and replicate is an inherent part of what it is to be alive, to be a biological organism in this context. And the normal way this plays out is life-sustaining. But inherent in that capacity of cell replication is the possibility that it will go wrong. And what you wind up with is 
a tumor, a cancer, you know, mm -hmm. something that is still making use of that capacity for replication, but it has decoupled itself from the life-preserving function that gave rise to it in the first place. And, you know, unconstrained and uncorrected, that will kill you. And he analogizes this kind of evil to a sort of cancer of the spirit. A, um, a situation in which that capacity for identifying facts, choosing goals, choosing actions to achieve those goals, all of those capacities developed because they are necessary to sustain our lives as human beings, as, you know, conceptual organisms. Um, but because we're volitional, an inherent part of having those capacities is the capacity to use them wrongly. And that's where evil comes from, in effect. It's, it's analogous to, you know, your cells happening to misuse their capacity to replicate. An evil person is misusing their capacity to um, grasp uh, facts, you know, set goals and choose actions. And so their behavior looks goal-directed because it's making use of those same capacities. But and it looks way. wrong yeah. because it's, it's become unmoored from the function of those capacities. I like the analogy. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, I don't. I don't know well, if that's please. clarifying to to Carl for what he's been. Well, it's I. Well, we talked. Uh, oh, it's probably been ten years ago now about the two theories of evil, and how Rand is more or less of the Boethian or or. Uh, uh, Aquin uh, a, a, a school of Aquinas in that regard. Um, you know, to a certain degree, Tolkien is the same way. That evil is incapable of existing without some means of parasitizing the good. Yeah, evil is uh, evil is metaphysically impotent. It's metaphysically impotent. impotent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yet we see any number of instances in the real world where it, it definitely is not impotent. However, metaphysically, that may be true. Mm -hmm. Because evil gets an awful lot of support because there is a lot of compromise in the modern well, at, world. Well, look at the example in the book we're reading. All of this yeah, evil true. leaning on, feeding on Hank's productive capacity. And he yeah. supports it. And doesn't even think that it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, he, well, he literally thinks this is no big deal. I can carry this load. And I should. Yeah. And there's actually one interesting line in his description there where he characterizes these people as trying to live just, you know, in effect, doing it really badly. They're, they're pretty shitty at it. Yeah. They're, it's they're... so easy for me. Yeah, he, he sees them as, you know, in effect, objects of pity because he sees them as struggling incredibly badly to do the same kind of thing that he's able to do superlatively well. 
I think he at one point called him children. I am pretty sure like flailing children or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, and you know, it's like, you know, make a note of that. Yeah. Um, one other thought on, I guess, Carl's concern, you know, that occurred to me. Um, I don't, think that there's necessarily a contradiction between the idea that you know you have these people who have this nihilist impulse and who also you know in a sense would like to survive they would like the values that are produced by the thing that they are trying to destroy what i think is important is the prioritization that those two things have in their value hierarchy you know, is it that they will act to destroy, um, you know, let's say the fountainhead of productivity right up to the point where it threatens to, you know, destroy themselves, you know, and then say, well, I have to choose, you know, one or the other, and I choose productivity. So I'm going to stop trying to destroy it because if I do that, you know, I'll destroy myself. Or is their top priority you know, the destruction, and they will take the values, you know, as long as, you know, taking the values doesn't prevent them from continuing to destroy this thing that they hate. And, you know, in the latter case, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, you know, they say, you know, I can't live if I keep engaging in this, you know, destructive course but the destruction is more important to me than continuing to live. That's, that's a rough well, I think, uh, no, no, Greg, didn't you, when you, that, that Instapundent, uh, with James, with, uh, with, uh, uh, representative Jordan calling the, uh, anti-plastic person that was, that was posted in the seminar chat, right? Oh, that might've been just, uh, the Boise folks. So basically, uh, oh, yeah, okay. was, um, some activist, uh, uh, environmental activist, uh, talking to a Congress critter. And he's like, uh, just patiently talking to her, trying to say, I, do you get what you're saying? I mean, you're, you're saying you want to shut down all plastic production. Well, have you thought about how that would work? I mean, for example, the glasses on your face, they're, they're made of plastic. Your, your shoes are made of plastic. Most of your clothes are. You, the, the, the water bottle next to you, that has plastic in it. The water that's in the water bottle was most likely delivered to you with plastic because and then you went into it. It's like, because we have all these ways to deliver water. And if you think about getting rid of plastic, you have to... God. <sighs> okay, so I was launching on an extended yeah. monologue about uh, the thing that I posted for Carl. How far did you did I get? And what did you guys hear? <laughs> well, uh, basically, uh, you 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 were he was at the point where uh, he was explaining that uh, she she probably got her water from plastic uh, pipes, and that there were other options that yeah. would just work as well. And then that's about you yeah. got to about that like point. Lead pipes. <laughs> we we stopped yeah. using those for a reason. 
mm. copper pipes you have to mine a lot and that tears things up and you you, know, you guys and, don't tend to like that either yep. so and and yeah and uses energy which you don't want us to create because yeah. so you know have you thought about all of these impacts to your life for the the wonderful desirable let's not have any past plastic nanoparticles anywhere by shutting down that entire industry you wouldn't be able to live have you you know what's your alternative here how do you how do you imagine this going um and it, it was just very compassionate just laying it out talking with her about it yeah i was hoping that the wheels however slowly were turning in her head and she was like oh yeah but did you notice what she she did a martin bailey I don't know if you caught that or not. Oh, uh, what what uh, what are you remembering? Sorry. Well, I'm just really only interested in ending the single use plastics. That's all I'm really interested. Oh, that's in. right. She switched to oh, yeah. It's just only about yeah. single use Mott, plastics. What? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Martin Bailey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. nice so try. yeah, it's like nice try. Anyway. You know the the fact that you've been you know driven. Uh, is it is it back to the Mott? The Mott is the yeah. port. The ba uh, yeah, the Bailey actually. Bailey is the Ford. Yeah, the fact that you've been driven back to the Bailey is a sign that you're losing the argument. I just want you to to know that I'm aware of that stratagem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here here's the irony, guys. I'll lay you odds, and I have nothing to back this up. So take it for what it's worth. We didn't hear about plastic particulates being an issue until well after it was mandated that. Plastics be biodegradable. Hmm. <laughs> so you think this is a, you know. Could be a side effect. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, the law of unintended consequences. Uh, yep. Always bites you in the ass. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, the law of unintended consequences is at least, you know, there are consequences involved, which is refreshing in its own right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so anyway, um, but yeah, the the point I think I was making yeah to Carl is that I don't think that there is a fundamental inconsistency between the observation that you know these people do seem to be you know desirous of the values that they get from the people that they are acting to destroy. You know, with the idea that when push comes to shove and they have to choose between those values and the act of destruction, they go with the destruction. Wow. It's just that most of the time and in the real world, push doesn't come to shove. No, they don't kill the host that easily. And so they don't <laughs> have to, they don't have to make that choice. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, witness most of what we see in the compromised institutions around us, um, private and public. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, this is one of the arguments about, you know, good acting to sustain evil, all of the effort that the good does in an attempt to compensate for and stave off the effects of the destructive acts of the evil simply pushes, you know, the need for evil people to acknowledge and make that final choice farther into the future. It allows them to get away with the belief that they can do both of those things on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And I suspect, although I haven't thought about this too much, that the essence of what you're trying to do when you deny support and sanction to the evil is to essentially push people towards needing 
to make that choice, you know, clearly and overtly as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah. It is uh, bringing that horizon closer. Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to support you that way. You'll need to choose choose uh, now. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, to, to take like a small value, you know, of like the, um, you know, the case of the child who wants to mooch off of their parents instead of getting a job. Yeah. Right. You know, the correct response to that on the parents' part is no, you do not, you know, continue to voluntarily, you know, support sort of this parasitic impulse on the part of the child. You throw them out of the house. You know, it's like it's rough. It sucks, and it's what you yeah, gotta do. Yeah. It's like you're you're a grown up. You know, you need material values to sustain your life. You have to produce those values. You know, figure it out like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, then the kid has to decide if their aversion to work is really worth. You know, if if that's really more important to them than uh, not starving to death. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we did a form of that exercise with, uh, our young charge. It was a struggle. Eventually he, um, he came to grips with the idea that, oh, I, I really need to actually be productive so that I can live. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, th there are obviously, you know, lots of implementational details there. You know, it's like given the horrible mixed economy that we live in, sometimes it's not all that easy to get a job that you can actually use to sustain yourself. And, you know, as long as, you know, your kid's making a sincere and serious effort. Yeah, you you're, you can be generous and very you, helpful. You, you, it's you only when they him, dig but... in, they're like... It's like, no, you really don't want to do this, do you? It's like you can see the resentfulness. It's like they, they resent the idea that they have to. It's like, okay, yeah, you, you really need to understand this. Yeah, it, it's like, I'm perfectly capable of continuing to support you. I will not. <laughs> hmm. It's rough. Yeah. Um, all right, so back to the book here. Back to the um, book. <laughs> how, uh, let's see, uh, can someone want to share how, how, how Francisco uh, explains the worthlessness of the San Sebastian mines to Jim Taggart. What world principles did Francisco I mean, is, act on in that endeavor? I mean, is hilariously a good answer? I, I absolutely was delighted by, man, <laughs> the writing is just so I mean, fun. Well, and well, and it comes as such a um, ray of sunshine, you know, with, you know, all of the you know, the looter and parasite dialogue in this chapter. And it's like suddenly Francisco and it's like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but sometimes the, 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 the quick back and forth banter with the, you know, just perfectly crafted lines and the no inconvenient follow-ups when it's like, oh, it's nothing you'd be concerned with. And they just drop it and move on, that kind of thing. Um, completely reminds me of, of like the, the sort of dialogue that's in a, in a mammoth screenplay or play <laughs> noel coward bonmo <laughs> <laughs> uh oh but yeah it's just it, francisco is just gold everywhere he shows up yeah <laughs> he yes <laughs> he's it is it is a delight when when he's working it um all right so how, how, jim finally has his moment gets him cornered mm -hmm. i i love the uh <laughs> this almost cinematic layout of like, oh, 
she he was like trying to like uh, draw him off for the private conversation and and so he followed along obediently but stopped just within hearing <laughs> of, of them. I, I, I love the, the line about here. You know, are you trying to hide from me the fact that I refuse to see you? <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's so fun. Uh, anyway. Um, so he, he, he basically uh, appealed a, said, I, I just embodied all of the principles that you love to mouth. All of you people. I did exactly. You should be giving me a medal. Why aren't you happy with me? I can't. I just don't understand why you're so unhappy yeah. with me. I'm doing exactly what you wanted. Yeah, it's like you, you think production isn't important, so we didn't produce anything. What's the problem? Yeah, I gave people jobs instead of, uh, instead of uh, uh, exploiting them. I didn't exploit yeah. them. It's like you you claim that, you know, as, you know, sort of a, a capitalist and business owner, I don't, you know, produce anything valuable, so I didn't do anything. You know, yeah. What, you know. I didn't get in the way like like I normally would have uh, by being a horrible capitalist. So, yeah, it was a, a and and of course they're incredulous. Their jaws are hanging open. They're pissed. But you're supposed to ignore all of those. So we can continue condemning you. Yeah. Uh, such yeah. a delight. You're, you're, you're not supposed to come over to our side. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I got a moral upgrade. I'm, 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 I'm being good now. Where's my praise? I need a medal. All right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and I see. think it, again, you know, bringing, you know, people a little bit closer to that, you know, need to choose between you know you know do you keep condemning the thing in me that creates the you know the positive values that you clearly do desire or do you desire to keep trying to destroy me you know because you don't get to do both yeah you gotta pick one you know and you know in this case francisco is you know, in effect, he what he's doing is he's going limp. Um, you know, on the moral front, he he's basically saying, you know, you you say that you want, you know, it's like you're trying to destroy me because I engage in certain kinds of productive, value-oriented activities. So I'm going to stop doing that. I'm not a target for you anymore. What's your problem? Yeah, we're good now, right? We're good now, right? Um, so, and so he, he's heightening that tension between, you know, their desire to destroy, you know, and, you know, their desire to live. So then he takes the uh, Francisco show over to Hank. <laughs> and, mm. and Hank uh, was really expecting to just absolutely hate him and see nothing of value in him. But, uh, of course... With his cool mammoth style dialogue, he's being snappy and saying all the right things and in intriguing ways. Um, what does Hank reveal about his view of the world while he's talking with Francisco? He's got a very different moral perspective. Yeah. 
Well, I, I actually, you might even call it an amoral perspective. He doesn't think that what he does. Yeah, he thinks it's amoral. at best amoral, I think. Yeah, amoral. He, he, or, but uh, one, one yeah. part that really stuck out at me was him, him saying that basically, maybe it wasn't the spot, but he's like, oh, it's almost like um, we've joined a, a, a forbidden religion or something. We're priests in a forbidden religion. And uh, nobody likes us because of it, but we still cling to it as our faith. Yeah, I think part of the um, the error that's going on here, you know, with Reardon is he's acting like the difference between him and the looters is a difference in optional values. And there, there were some lines in the chapter that, you know, came pretty close to that. Um, you know, it's like the attitude that, you know, it's like, you know, that's, you know, their way. It's not mine, but it's theirs. And, you know, just as, you know, I wish they would respect my ways, I must respect theirs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's like the different approaches to life are, you know, analogous to, um, you know, one person who likes, you know, spicy food and another person who, you know, prefers sushi or something. Um, I mean, maybe that's not a good distinction, but, you know, matters of taste. Yeah, I, I think he relegates, I think he relegates the more fundamental differences between them to that level. And that's, and do you think he's doing that? Uh, honestly or i think uh, yes i think you know as a mistake because reardon um you know at this point in in the book reardon does not really think philosophically you know he doesn't you know analyze issues in that way he just sort of sees you know you know, his way of living and their way of living as kind of lump sums. It's like, well, you know, I've got my way, they've got their way. Um, but he doesn't really see it in terms of an explicit moral code of values that he has and one that, you know, they have and, you know, where they might overlap and where they might differ and what kinds of differences in ways of living are reasonable and what kinds are not. And his failure to draw those relevant distinctions, you know, is very clearly a mistake and it's very clearly causing him a lot of harm, but I don't think it's dishonest. No, I think uh, Francisco's trying to wake him up to it. Here, here's, um, I found a fun spot here. Uh, you wouldn't understand it if I told you that the man who works works for himself, even if you even if he does carry the whole wretched bunch of you along. Now, I'll guess what you're thinking. Go ahead. Say say that say that it's evil. Say I'm selfish, conceited, heartless, cruel. I am. I don't want any part of that tripe about working for others. I'm not. And uh, Francisco is like, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Uh, the only thing that's wrong in what you said is that you permit anyone to call it evil. Why are you willing to carry them? Because they're a bunch of miserable children who struggle to remain alive desperately and very badly, while I, I don't even notice the burden. Why don't you tell them that? 
what? That you're working for your own sake, not theirs. They know it. Oh, yes, they know it. Every single one of them here knows it. But they don't think you do. And, he, and then he says, this is a battle. Uh, and Hank's like, what battle? I hold the whip hand. I don't fight the disarmed. So there's this uh, duty-based ethics thing he's got going on. Are they? Uh, he, he came back. Uh, they, I don't fight the disarmed. Are they disarmed? They have a weapon against you. It's their only weapon, but it's a terrible one. Ask yourself what it is sometime. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that is, I think, trying to push Reardon more into thinking about these issues from an explicitly philosophical standpoint and not merely in terms of, um, you know, his work. Yeah. As you know, like, the thing the thing that he personally enjoys in his life. It's like well, he picked um, up that attitude through osmosis, cultural osmosis, and he broke through on the productive side. Hmm. And if you think about, I mean, uh, Francisco specifically says, he says, you know, Reardon says, "Well, why are you talking to me?" He says, "To give you the words that you, so that you may use them when you need them." Ah, yeah, that's a little bit later. Oh, same. Let us yeah. say to give you the words you you need for the time when you'll need them. Yeah, mm -hmm. which in is another way of saying you know, giving him the concepts that he needs mm -hmm. to to think about these issues and the nature of the concepts that you know he and Dagny get given or figure out over the course of the novel sort of works their way down the philosophic hierarchy. You know, the, the first section of the book is very sort of political. Um, uh, and um, the second section is more ethical. Um, and the third section gets all the way down to metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get, let's push a little further in here. We're sort of running out of time. Um, what events uh, were leading, let's see, oh yeah, I actually have this highlighted. Uh, the events that lead to Dagny's demand for the bracelet from Lillian. Um, what's Dagny's state of mind before, during, and after the exchange? Why does Lillian agree to trade it with her? How does Hank respond to that exchange and why? Here's the, here's the scene. This, Lillian was saying, extending her arm with the metal bracelet for the inspection of two Smartly groomed, groomed women. Why no? It's not from a hardware store. It's oh God. What a, she is such a piece of work. It's a very special gift from my husband. Oh yes, of course it's hideous. But don't don't you see? It's supposed to be priceless. Of course I'd exchange it for a common diamond bracelet any time. But somehow nobody will offer me one for it, even though it is so very very valuable. Why, my dear? It's the first thing ever made of reared metal. And uh, yeah, Dagny, her head is spinning at about this point, and uh, she snaps off her own bracelet and says, if you are not the coward I think you are, you will exchange it. Now, I don't actually know why she needed to go in that hard. She could have just been, she says, oh, I overheard your, your I overheard your, your dilemma. Here, take mine. Didn't, yeah. Well, I think... You know, she's probably he, pretty pissed off. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think what Dagny kind of sees there is, you know, Lillian is, from her 
from Dagny's perspective, Lillian is, you know, overtly attacking Reardon. She's, she's engaging in a sort of a moral assault. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Leveraging, you know, from, from sort of her Lillian's moral framework, you know, leveraging, you know, this physical artifact, um, you know, essentially saying, you know, well, you know, my husband thinks it's priceless, but nobody else thinks it's worth anything. You know? Yeah. So clearly, you know, my husband's, you know, perspective on this is, you know, just, you know, obviously yeah, false. He's worthy, debased. Worthy uh, of he mockery. It's valuable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, so. It's like, how crazy is he to think that this thing is valuable? Um, yeah. and, and, and she rubs that, she physically rubs his nose in it too, by wearing the mm -hmm. fanciest crap she can find and then has this unadorned you know, chain otherwise. on her wrist. Right. And what Dagny is essentially doing is um, when she goes in hard, she pushes Lillian into a corner. Um, yeah, there is no way to avoid it at that there's point. There's no way to avoid, you know, making the decision at that point. And, you know, it's like, you know, you either have to back down and say that you actually value this thing that you have been mocking so assiduously, or you have to give it up to me. Those are your only two options. And my vague memory is that in a later party, uh, she ends up uh, using the bracelet in, in another scene that is delightful. Can't remember the details, though. I guess I'll enjoy it all the we'll, more we'll, when I we'll get, get there. We'll get to it, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a fantastic scene where it's just like, oh, no, you didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, yeah. And I mean, the reason she goes in hard is precisely you know, to push Lillian a, into that corner. Yeah. You know, she, she doesn't, and, and she doesn't want to give her, to yeah, she doesn't the, want to give her the option to back down or, you know, pull the, you know, ha ha, I was only joking, you know. Yeah, I guess if she went like in that. soft, like I was suggesting, yeah, she could just say, oh, of course I was just exaggerating. Can't anybody take a joke today? Yeah. We're all so serious. You, yeah. But you, you call her a coward, you know, now it's like, no, you actually have to stand up for, you know, the, uh, you know, the position, you know, that was motivating your attack, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> yeah, give me the bracelet. This is horrible. People are crying. It's like a wonderful scene she's created. Uh, see, what was the aftermath? Yeah, oh, it's like, what, what's I'm so sorry. horrible about taking you up on your word? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, much like, uh, oh, it's like in the small, it's it's much like what uh, Francisco just did with the, the mines. Hey, I'm, why are you so mad? I gave you exactly you what so you mad? wanted. Why are you so mad? You know, I, I took you at your word and assumed you were speaking honestly. You so know, why, uh, why are section, you flipping your shit? <laughs> yeah, the section closes with her saying, I'm sorry, Hank, but I had to do it. His eyes remained expressionless. She was suddenly certain that she knew what he felt. He wanted to slap her face. It was not necessary. He answered coldly, coldly and walked on. Um, yeah. And then he became the perfect husband. But he, he had to keep asking himself, why, why did he marry her? He actually started questioning it. Oh, I lose you again. No. no. <laughs> okay. Everybody was quiet. It's like, ah, oh, crap, not again. Um, he, yeah, he had been, he's been asking. He, he, he doesn't know why he did this. Well, and more interestingly, he's actually starting to think about it. Yeah. Because, you know, he has well, this tendency to, 
shrug it yeah. off. Yeah. The attacks. Yeah. He, he yeah, shrugs to, off the attacks. Yeah. To, to deprioritize these kinds of things because he doesn't really think they're important compared to, you know, time he could be spending, you know, on his work, which he actually enjoys. Is there some part of him that sees um, these incredibly vicious and destructive attacks like what she's doing to him? as something a little child is doing. It's like, yeah, yeah, this may be her only she, she's pitching of feeling a, good yeah, about she, herself. She's, yeah, she's pitching a tantrum because, you know, it's like she, she feels, you know, I don't know, left out, you know, that, that I'm not paying her, you know, enough or the right kind of attention that I'm not, you know, living up to my, you know. My end of the bargain. Yeah, you know, my moral and social obligations, you know. You know, so he's just magnanimous about it. He's like, okay, yeah. I, I will suffer like, my, my, I'll, I'll eat my, I'll take my lumps. Well, Reardon, and I, I think this is stated explicitly at a later point in the novel. Um, you know, the looters don't take responsibility for anything that they do. Reardon takes responsibility for things that are really, you know, outside of his control. He takes responsibility for everything, whether it's actually his or not. Yeah. Which... And, you know, so in, in cases like this, you know, he, he looks at, you know, Lillian's behavior and, you know, concludes that, you know, she's acting out because of something that he's done wrong. And that therefore he has to, you know, accept you know, what she is doing because it is fundamentally his responsibility and he doesn't shirk responsibility. Mm -hmm. He's a, let's see, he's, he's very, uh, when I, when I think of a stoic, I think of him. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are people who, you know, have said that, you know, Atlas Shrugged, you know, teaches people to be emotionally repressive. <laughs> and to the extent that there is a grain of truth in that charge, it's from people who misinterpret early stage Reardon. Yeah, we, we, uh, uh, so we've been studying objectivism for decades. When I'm reading this, it's tragic and horrific and, and absolutely nothing that uh, a healthy human should try to be yeah yeah but it, it's actually kind of interesting um thinking back because you know i said at the outset this was a really hard chapter to read mm -hmm. yes but it, but it was much more difficult for me going through this time than it was the previous times that i read the book yeah i don't remember this being a big deal way back when yeah um, but yeah, this is, this is horrifying, this, but this is, yeah, this is like, oh my God, you know, it, it's like the moral equivalent of walking into an abattoir. It's just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, and, and all it would take is for him just to go, wait, that that's over the line. You, you really can't do that to another person <laughs> and say no. Yeah. And yet he just doesn't he do it because he's just so tragically wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's got a lot of moral growth to accomplish here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's just because I have a better understanding of the mistakes that Reardon is making now than I did the first time I read the novel. Um, you know, because the, the first time you read the novel, you... It's all a mystery. 
Well, and you know, if you're not an objectivist, you don't understand the moral framework that Rand is trying to lay out here. You're going to approach these um, these interactions from a more conventional um, moral and psychological perspective. Yeah, you and, might actually think everything he's he's a hero in the story, the big hero. So, yeah, or, you would, I mean, you're you're going to look at him. him as someone who, you know, clearly has you know. You know, he's a great businessman. You're you're going to tend to interpret it like a conservative. This is political, right? You've you've mm -hmm. got a bunch of um, you know, looters who are you know playing you know political. We're going to steal your stuff. You know, and and regulate your business into the ground kind of games. Um, you know, and they're artistic hangers on. Um, you know, and, and you've got your know, Reardon, the heroic businessman and, you know, Dagny, the heroic businesswoman and Francisco, the whatever the hell is going on with him, but he's just fun. Um, yeah. um yeah. and actually that is how people I've known, they absolutely interpret this as, yeah, this is all about politics, right? I, I like that. Yeah. And it's like, uh, all I'm seeing is, um, yeah, mm. morality. Yeah. All over these pages. Yeah. You, <laughs> you see that on. Yeah. And you, you look at that on the moral level and it's like, no, there's there's something completely different going on here that you're just overlooking and it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> like uh, you're, you're, you're looking at a great man crucifying himself for no reason. Yeah. And, and monsters just slashing at him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. Um, while Lillian isn't playing in the large like some of the uh, other scoundrels, man, she is at the very top of the of the evil spectrum in the book. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, she's she's not, not hitting that many lives, but yeah. the ones she's focused on, oh my god. Yeah, just in in terms of just the sheer viciousness, yeah, and and nihilism of what she does, she might be the most evil character in the book. I yeah, yeah that's easily arguable. I I agree. I, it's um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. There's a lot of pretty nasty people in this book. I mean, she's but, described um, as very beautiful and all of that's why he picked her. I guess. I, I, why did he marry her? I, but it's like, oh my god, she is so horrible one of the ugliest characters and it's just like run away all it would take yeah. is one line to shut that shit down yeah i mean the only other person i can think of who might rival her would be jim uh, yeah in a different way in a uh, different um, well yeah. in a different way and i think on a on a smaller scale but you know what jim does with uh his eventual wife is oh, actually running yeah. he he's running an inverted version of Lillian's playbook on a smaller scale yeah that uh, that, that was, was that was fucked up i mean really yeah. fucked up mhm mm i forgot about that yeah. <laughs> oh man well and i think you know uh, for those listening along for spoilers we'll we'll get to that later yeah, yes, but it's, I mean, you know, it's like minor plot spoiler. I think there's a reason why when Lillian decides to cheat on Hank, she does it with Jim. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Birds of a feather. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So 
for the final section here, when he's speaking with her alone, uh, why did he actually marry her? Was it a, so, uh, basically a social obligation, the expected thing? Uh, she seemed elusive, couldn't quite get her, and he, his normal uh, super achiever aspects kicked in and he, he, he pursued? Yeah, I've never been entirely clear on that point, you know, to be honest. I mean, it's obviously well, a horrific error on his part, but... Uh, yeah, well, I, I think I think what you're looking at here is self-sabotage, and he doesn't even realize it because, because of his view of sex. Look at what he considered mm. be his motivation to drag her down into this deep, dark... Uh, into the depravity? Yes, that he inhabits, and and that he would consider that to be some something of a victory. Oh, he because he, he feels sexual impulses, and so he's like, "Oh, that's horrible." Yeah, uh, yeah. And I he, don't know. And he, he indulges it now and then, and he's accepted yeah. the premise that it's bad. Yeah, although I mean, I got the sense that you know, he was attracted to her because he thought he saw something um, of value in her. Oh, uh, austerity. Yeah, I remember that phrase. Uh, skip, skip, skip. The long chapter. Um, yeah, it was. It was Lillian's austerity that attracted him. The conflict between her austerity and her behavior. He had never liked anyone or expected to be liked. He found himself held by the spectacle of a woman who was obviously pursuing him, but with obvious reluctance, as if against her own will, as if fighting a desire she resented. It was she who planned that they should meet, then faced him coldly, as if not caring if he knew it, that, that he knew it. She spoke little. She had an air of mystery that seemed to tell him he would never break through her proud detachment, and an air of amusement mocking in her own desire and his. Um, so... He had, oh, yeah, there we go. He had not known that many women. He, he moved towards his goal, sweeping aside everything that did not pertain to it in the world and in himself. Uh, so, yeah, he, there were times when he felt a sudden, while, while focusing on his work, he would feel desire, and he yeah. had surrendered to it. Yeah, to drag her down, very clear. Uh, I'm yeah. looking for that. Oh, yeah. with a sense of his own degradation. Uh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was the difficulty of the conquest that made him want her. Mm. And he wanted to drag her down to his bed. Huh. They gave him a dark pleasure, the sense of a victory worth winning. So, yeah. so it's tied somehow to his super achieving in a messed up way. Yeah. Well, and also I think that there's a, a paragraph about, you know, the day when Lillian came from New York to his office of her own sudden choice and asked him to take her through the mills. And, um, said he heard a, you know, a soft, low, breathless tone, the tone of admiration growing in her voice as she questioned him about his work and looked at the place around her. 
He looked at her graceful figure moving against the bursts of furnace flame and at the light swift steps of her high heels stumbling through just a slag as she walked resolutely by his side. The look in her eyes when she watched a heat of steel being poured was like his own feeling for it made visible to him. When her Maybe. eyes moved up to his face, he saw the same look, but intensified to a degree that seemed to make her helpless and silent. It was at dinner that evening that he asked her to marry him. So, I wonder if he's just projecting his values onto her because she doesn't think that way about his I mean, business. Well, she had that, you know, certainly the physical appearance. Um, yeah, but and clearly there was his something. Work. There was something in what she saw, you know of him and the mills that was attractive to her in some sense. Um, you know, now I think we, we can guess now that it's, you know, nihilistically motivated. Mm -hmm. um, but she had a reaction. Um, I mean, the essence of that, um, that sort of nihilistic impulse, um, you know, what Rand calls hatred of the good for being the good, um, does in fact require that one identify something as good. And it's possible that what happened, you know, in the mills that, you know, day was, you know, Lillian is seeing, you know, Reardon as the productive genius that he is, and that that is good. And Reardon saw her seeing him and his business as good. And Reardon believed that that meant she was like him. Whereas in actuality, her response to identifying these things as good was the diametric opposite of his. Mm -hmm. You know, but because he was unfamiliar with women, philosophically unsophisticated, when he saw that reaction in her, it was like, you know, it was he interpreted it as someone seeing the world, his world in the same way that he did and giving him a sanction of, you know, its rightness and, you know, worthiness of admiration. And he hadn't gotten much of that. And so he reacted to it very strongly. Yeah. And as a result, made a very bad mistake. His desire for her had died in the first week of their marriage. Yeah, isn't that quite a statement? Oh, my God. Uh, it's like he realized very quickly that, you know, that admiration, you know, that he thought he saw in her was not, in fact, you know, what he, you know, had thought he saw. But at that point, you know, it was too late. He'd pledged his word and he doesn't go back on his yeah, word. His words is bond. So. Let's see. What remained was only a need for which he was unable to destroy. Uh, he had never entered a whorehouse. He thought at times that the self-loathing he would experience there could be no worse than what he felt when he was driven to enter his wife's bedroom. Oh. Yes. Good God. Yeah, this very, um, I'm with you. Very hard to read this one. Well, you know, just know that, you know, she'll get his event or hers eventually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. So, um, hey, uh, meaning of the chapter title. I think it, it's just focusing mainly on uh, 
mm. how the non-commercial is uh, everything going on. Everything going on at this party, the uh, what's supposed to be proper. Well, he's the only he's the only commercial enterprise there. Well, with the exception of Dagny and Francisco and Francisco, but we don't know that about Francisco yet. But True. we're I guess we're learning about the non-commercial. Uh, is there a double or triple meaning on this one that we're picking out yet? Hmm. Well, sure. it works at several levels. I mean, we have the actual nonprofit, and the president of that nonprofit there is a guest of Philip Rudin. That's true. Yeah. So we we have the we have the the commercial level as it were of the non-commercial, but we also have the ethical level of the non-commercial, wherein commercial enterprises are denigrated, and you know it's not well. Yes, they're they're paying lip service to the idea that the non-commercial is superior, but it's almost as if they're doing it perfunctorily rather than out of conviction. I would also note that there is a very real sense in which Francisco belongs on the non-commercial side of the equation. He he does currently. That's that's like his persona, his role. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. his Yeah. He's he's at this party with a bunch of people who are, you know, in many ways just non-productive, but they're not all non-productive in the same way and for the same reason. Yeah. And um and even oh during this chapter he was saying I'm I'm doing exact. I've I've adopted exactly your values. I'm doing just what you want. And yet, yeah, clearly, yet Francisco, was, <laughs> Francisco was clearly has not, in fact, adopted their values. And it is kind of interesting to ask the sense. It's like, well, you know, he, you know, you know, he's saying this, and yet you know it's not true. Yeah. So that is the interesting thing. In the same exact chapter, yeah, he's clearly not one of them even though he's pretending to be one of them or acting like one of them well, or something. He's mouthing, the, he's mouthing their words. Yeah. But he's doing it in a way that I think makes it apparent, you know, it's like Jim in no way thinks that Francisco is actually motivated by the things yeah. that he's saying. He's, it's just it's that like, Jim is not in a position to say, well, you should have, you know, acted on some different set of, of words yeah. because they are his. It's It's like malicious compliance. It's like, well, yes, you're doing just what I told you to do, but you shouldn't be doing it that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. You should be doing it in a way that still enriches me because uh, nobody should have riches. What? Because reasons. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm sure will come to me any moment now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Any moment. Any moment. All right. Uh, if nothing else, we can put a pin in chapter six, the non-commercial. All right, I think so. Have uh, have fun editing the two sessions together. Yeah, that'll be a delight. Thank you all.